you take your Bible and turn to John 16, verses 5 through 11, I want to bring a message this morning uh, for you entitled, Jesus' Promised Spirit. This is the, this is the uh, sermon series we've been in now. For This is the seventh message of eight. Next week we'll end this message series. Jesus' Promised Spirit, unconvinced to convicted. Unconvinced to convicted. You know, I, this week I was asked by a couple of different people, what are, what are you learning from uh, your study of the Spirit? And, you know, it's hard to quantify. It's hard to put it all in a, in a short, uh, what I know these people don't have time to hear everything. They don't want to hear everything. Uh, they might want to, but they don't want to, they don't want to know. I was, I, I'll be honest with you. Uh, Fairly, I was fairly ignorant of the Spirit. And that's just me being honest. And uh, I, think, uh, I think if we all were honest, uh, I think a lot of us would admit the same thing. Just, uh, it's a shame how neglected He is uh, in our lives. Francis Chan has written a book uh, entitled Forgotten God. And it is a short paperback version book. On the Holy Spirit. It's a great title. Forgotten God. Uh, Because we emphasize the Father. And we emphasize the Son. And we should. But we almost, if not completely, neglect the Holy Spirit. So when I'm asked, what do you learn about the Holy Spirit? It's hard to quantify. It's hard to put it in a synopsis. I'm learning a lot about the Holy Spirit. A lot lot more than I uh, probably even care to admit to myself. I've had a class on pneumatology, <laughs> uh, but in uh, not not throwing stones at my seminary. But uh, to be honest, they're scared to death of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it, it, that's just the honest truth. And I was I'm scared to death of the Holy Spirit too. I think there is a right fear of Him, and there's a wrong fear of Him. And uh, what we tend to fear is wrongly. We wrongly fear Him. Uh, but anyway, I took the class, and it was kind of for credit. You know, you had to, you didn't have a choice. You, you study, you had to study about the Holy Spirit in seminary. It's just required, and uh, that's kind of how I treated it. I neglected. I have for years neglected the Holy Spirit. Now, at times, uh, at times, I've felt like I was infused uh, with a with a significant uh, passion for Christ that I know that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt comes from the Spirit. But I'll be honest. I think, just, just be honest in your own heart. The sad truth is most of us live daily as if Christ doesn't exist. I mean, daily we go about our business as if Christ, if somebody stops and said, is Jesus real? We'd say, oh yeah, yeah, Jesus is real. And we could tell the gospel Pretty well, but if they were just looking at our lives and they didn't ask the question, how long would they go? How long would they live with us? How long would they live around us and not and and our lives and our words and wouldn't give testimony to the life of Christ? And I think the answer to the question of how much we understand and respect and revere and reverence and want the Spirit. I think that's the same answer as how much we project 
and live a life that is consumed by Christ. In other words, if you show me somebody who really is, really is under the influence and the power of the Spirit in their walk every day, you'll also tell me that person loves Jesus. I think we neglect the Spirit. I think we undersell the work of the Spirit, even in the, in the Word of God. I guess it's Confession Sunday, huh? I can't tell you how many times I've read the book of Luke. It's not until about two months ago as I was reading through this series and preparing for this series that I read through the book of Luke with a, hot, with a pen in hand and marked every time Luke said that the Holy Spirit came in power on Christ. The Holy Spirit led Christ out of the wilderness. The Holy Spirit led Him to Nazareth to preach. The Holy Spirit instructed or led Him in the Greek to heal somebody. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. It's all over Luke. Theme seems to be developing. The breath of Christ is breathed on the disciples in the upper room. And He says, I'm leaving my peace with you. But He breathes on it. Significant to me. This breathing. What is He doing? And then you flip over to Acts. And how did the Spirit come? Like a mighty rushing breath wind and he hovered as a flame a tongue set of flame and then acts is an entire book on the spirit the spirit the spirit the spirit and all of a sudden in two volumes we have luke the inspired writer telling us the spirit is life he is your life. Jesus Christ performed every act of preaching, praying, ministering, healing, not through His own power. That should sink in. See, when you read the miracles, you're probably like me. You thought, he does that because he's God. No. Jesus never healed a person because he was God. Never. Jesus never preached a sermon because he was God. Jesus never preached or prayed, excuse me, prayed because he was God. Jesus never spoke a kind word of blessing over a child because He was God. I'm convinced, I think you will be too if you read the Gospels closely. Jesus did everything He did because of the Holy Spirit of God. And so when He tells you, I'm sending a helper to you. And you'll be better because I'm gone and He is here. He's not soft-shoeing His strength and power. He's not telling you something to try to falsely encourage you. He's telling you, I lived my life by the power of the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to go to the right hand of the Father, and I'm sending you the exact same power that I possessed. 
while in the flesh. I'm not saying he couldn't have done these things because he's God. I'm saying he did not do it because he was God. He did it because he was filled with the Spirit of God. The clincher for me on that was the baptism of Jesus Christ. Has that never struck you? It struck me as odd. Why was Jesus anointed with the Spirit of God at His baptism? He's God. Did He become God when He was baptized? Had He been just a man walking around just like everybody else and then God said, oh, He was perfect for the first 30 years of His life. Now I'll fill Him. No. There are heresies out there that will teach you he was not God and then he became God at his baptism. That's not orthodox. That's not the Bible. The Bible doesn't teach you that. He's God in the flesh and he's in his baptismal mode. And when he comes, depending on your mode of baptism, up out of the water or whether he was poured, the water was poured over him. We're not in that debate. However it happened, he was baptized. And it says what? Heaven was opened and what came? The Spirit of God came in the form of a dove. And then God said, this is my Son, whom I'm well pleased. In whom I'm well pleased. What's going on? Why the Spirit of God? I thought Jesus was God. He is God. But everything He does in His earthly ministry, He does by the same power that is available to you and to me. Now, we're uncomfortable with that. I'm uncomfortable with it. Because we're sitting here making excuses. I'm just a normal Joe. I'm not Jesus. I can't do the things Jesus did. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, you will do the same things I've done. As a corporate group, you will do greater things than I've done. I've noticed something in my life. Maybe this is where you're at. I excuse my sin. I excuse my lack of zeal for Christ. I excuse my lack of opening my mouth and speaking to my neighbor about Jesus when I know this neighbor is going to die and go to hell. And the reason I do it is because I'm just human. I can't, I'm not God. I can't do everything. And Jesus is in heaven saying, Son, I've given you the same power from on high that I had in my life. Are you saying I'm not strong enough? Are you saying that I've withheld some gift from you? Well, no, Lord, that's not what I meant. But yes, that is what I'm saying. Let's just get honest with God for just a moment, can we? Together. We like to excuse ourselves so that we might remain selfishly in control of our own life or we, we might keep our popularity with our friends or we might not be made uncomfortable by the life that God's called us to live or we might excuse it by sin in the flesh and I just can't help it. But the reality is Jesus doesn't buy, I just can't help it. When you are His child, He says, I've given you everything that is necessary for you to obey, to speak, to live as if you have God in you. Because you do have God. I can't tell you how much this message series has changed to me. I'm thankful to God. 
that in his infinite wisdom, he opened this for me. Because now when I stand in front of that lost man who's without Christ, it is in me to say, there is in me this spirit which says, see him as I see him. See him as I see him. He's going to go to hell. And you're worried about your popularity. You're, you're scared of what he might think when he leaves. He's going to go to hell. And you won't open up because of your selfishness. I'm just trying to encourage you. It doesn't matter if you're the pastor, the teacher, if you're the theologian. It doesn't matter who you are. In Christ, you have the gift of the Holy Spirit. And He is ready and available to you at all times. And so when we sin, it is our sin, not His. There is no situation which you have not been given the strength and the power through the Holy Spirit to overcome. We just choose not to. I choose not to overcome. There's no situation in which we can't be a witness, but I just choose not to be a witness. There's no situation in which I can't be a source of encouragement, but I choose not to be because it bothers me or I'm too busy or I ain't got time or I don't want to get emotionally invested in their life because it's going to cost me. I mean, the reality is I'm a self-centered person. And the need is to be Christ-centered. And it happens through the Spirit. I want to say to you, we, we've neglected the Spirit. We've done away with the Spirit. And it, is, it has adversely affected our power for living and our power for witness. And we're in, first, I mean, in John 16, 5 through 11 this morning. And I, I have simple outline. I, it's not on the screen. I apologize for that. Um, but it's simple. If you have a pen, if you can write the word convinced, you got it. We are convinced through this we are convinced of sin. Let's just keep it simple. Convinced of sin. Look at uh, verse 5. He says, "But now, Jesus, but now I'm going to him who sent me and none of you asks me where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart." Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For I do not, if I do not go away, the helper, the paraclete, the counselor, helper, counselor, advocate, same word, will come. Will not come. If I don't go away, he will not come to you. To you. To you. He's not just coming. To you. But if I go, I will send him to you. He's not some vague force in the universe. He is a real person sent by Christ and the Father to us. To us. There's no excuse any longer, is there? God, 
has now taken the excuse. Well, sin's just too strong. Stronger than God. He's available to you. He's in you. He's with you. He's taken our excuse. I can't help it, God. God says, I know you can't. That's why I sent him to you. And then a list in verses 8 through, uh, or excuse me, verse 8, which is explained in 9 through 11. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Convinced of sin, that's the first point. The word here that is translated convict in the ESV can be understood to be reprove. He reproves. Now, reproof would mean he's speaking to Christians. He's coming to reprove Christians of their sin. I think he does do that, but that's not what I think this word means. I don't think that's what Jesus is trying to say. I believe that what he's saying is, He's come to convince the world of their sin. The Holy Spirit has come to convince lost people of their sin. And I also take the word world, which can have eight different meanings. The word world, cosmos, can have eight different meanings when put into English. You might have trouble with that. I know I do. You thought language was simple. World is world. But it's not just that. They used it in so many ways. And I think what he's saying here is that he's going to the world in the sense of those that God will save out of the world to convince them of their sin. In other words, it seems like this broad statement that he's going to all the world and every human everywhere. But when you read it in context... That can only mean that either God isn't strong enough to save the people He wants to save, or that the world is pertaining to somebody different than every human in every continent. It's got to be one of those two. Either God's not powerful enough to save who He wants to save, because this convince, this convict leads to salvation. He's convicting them. He's convincing them of their sin. And we'll get to why I believe it has to do with salvation in the second point here. But he's convincing them of their sin. He's convicting them of their sin. Now, you've got to kind of go with me here, okay? Back to when you were a lost man or woman. You did not know Christ. And you were living your life. Whatever your life looked like. Okay? It might look really good. You were a high achiever. You were going places. You had scholarships to every university. You were achieving the world's goals. And you were a good person. You'd never mistreated people. You were always trying to be kind. You worked hard. You were respectful to your elders. You were a good person. But all of that goodness, really in the end, was self-motivated. You weren't being good for the sake of anybody except yourself. It was selfishness. You were earning your righteousness. I'm doing well. I'm doing good. And somewhere, I don't know where it happened for you, but somewhere God smacked you with, you are an awful person. 
an event occurred. I don't know what it might have been. And then in your, it, it, like a light switch switched on, I'm not good. And what I'm telling you is, that wasn't your genius. That was the Spirit of God convicting you, convincing you that you're a sinner. Jesus said that's what He's going to do. He's going to convince you of your sin. Or you might have been, like other, the other half of the world, just living life, man. I mean, we get down on sinners. Let me tell you. We get down on people that we class as sinners, bad people. The reality is they're just living what they believe. They're just living the only way they know how to live. They're just not fake and hypocritical. They're out there. They're who they are. I was watching an interview with Christopher Hitchens. You know, I like Christopher Hitchens. He's one of the world's most renowned atheists. I like him. So that's strange. A preacher likes an atheist. He curses about God. He curses about Christ. He thinks we're idiots. But I like the guy. You know why? Because he's living his life. He's not under any restraint to try to appease anybody or anything. He's out there. He's who he is. He's not being a hypocrite. I'm not a believer. I don't think this... I think this whole thing's a fairy tale and a sham... And so I'm on a mission, this is a mission, to convince the world that this fairy tale known as Christianity is really bad for all of us and we need to get rid of it and live our lives. He is at least living an honest life. He's dying and going to hell. That saddens me. But he's at least honest. And some of you were that way. You weren't an atheist, but you just didn't care about God. So you partied, lived it up, Live the high life? You dated who you wanted? You had sex with who you wanted? You drank as much as you wanted to drink? You were just a person living your life. But something happened. I don't know what it is. It's different for every person. It might have been at the end of one of those drinking binges. It might have been laying in the bed next to that person that wasn't your wife or husband. And it hits you. What I am doing is absolutely wrong. I had a guy come to me yesterday that I've known since I was a kid. He worked on my dad's farm. This guy knew nothing of Jesus Christ. I mean, he just never been to church. Didn't care. He started going to church. And he came to me yesterday and he said, tears in his eyes, I've been living with this woman. Now, he lived with three or four women the time I knew him. He's never been married the whole time I've known him. He's li- I'm living with this lady. That's wrong, ain't it? Yeah. I need to get married, don't I? I said, well, Danny, you need Jesus is what you need. And we launched off into this long conversation about what it was to know Jesus. You should have seen the look of shock and horror on his face when I said, you know, hey, Honestly, man, be be faithful to, as faithful as you can be. But it, there's no need to clean that part of your life up. If you don't know Jesus, it doesn't do you any good. The preacher said, "Don't move out." I mean, strange, right? No, I'm not for helping people get better. They need the Spirit of God to convict them, convince them that they are in need of Jesus Christ. Not that they need to put a band-aid on their sin. Because he may move out and just run to another sin. He needs Jesus. 
Now, convinced of sin. I look at verse 8, and he comes, when he comes, he will convict the world, convince the world concerning sin. And I say, he's not only coming to convince them of sin in general, all these sins, but of sin. What is this sin? It's the sin of unbelief. No man, woman, child living has ever come to Christ without the work of the Holy Spirit. You can't come unless He draws you. Not be converted. When that day hits you, whether you were a righteous person in your own eyes or you were an unrighteous person, when that day hits you, wherever you were, you may have been in the puke of sin. Really, literally, at the bottom of the gutter. When it hits you that you were a sinner, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. And if you were convicted and convinced that you did not believe in Christ, that was the beginning of your salvation. That was the new life being birthed. John has been very systematic in teaching us about the Spirit. In John chapter 3, he records Jesus' words. Nicodemus says, what must I do to enter the kingdom of God? And his answer, Christ's answer is, you've got to be born again. How can I do that? Through the Spirit. Because what's born of the flesh is flesh, and what's born of the Spirit is eternal, Nicodemus. You need the Spirit of God to make you alive. In other words, you're living around a bunch of sinners, college students, what you need to be doing is praying for your friends to be convinced and convicted through the Holy Spirit of their sin and their need of Christ because you can't convince them on your own power. He has to convince them. If He doesn't, anything they do will be a work which is damnable. Cleaning their life up, coming to church, saying the right things will be damnable because it's done in their own strength. But if He convinces them, and He convinces them not only of their sin in general, but of their need of Christ, they will be saved. If He doesn't do it, they have no hope. Your prayer for them needs to be, God, send your Spirit to convince them. He convinces of sin. His second role in here is He convinces of the source of righteousness. Now, I know the word source is not in the text. I've inserted it. But let me say, that's why I think that the first word here, convict, convict them of sin and of righteousness, these two things go together. Because to be saved, you must know you are a sinner in need of salvation. And the only way that you will be saved is if you're convinced and convicted that Jesus Christ is the source for your righteousness. Okay? And that's why the, 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 the man-made gospel doesn't work. Some of you have sat under that. For years, I sat under and I have taught it. This is the great argument of the church for years, for centuries. You had a group of people who followed a bishop named Pelagius who believed that people were basically good in some percentage. Some people like Hitler were only probably 5% good. But they had some good in them. And other people like you, were about 65% good. And you just needed a little more help. 
That's the teaching as simple as I can put it. That there is good inside of men. You hear the world teach this all the time. The good of humanity. There's no good in humanity. There is no good in humanity. My skin crawls when I hear that. There's no good in humanity. Sinners. All of us. Beginning to end. Hitler has zero righteousness. And I have zero righteousness. The same work of God it takes to save Hitler is the same work of God that it takes to save Carlton Weathers. He is not worse and I'm not better. We are sinners in the eyes of God. We stand equal in our sin. I must be convinced of that before I can be saved. I believe that with all my heart. Nobody gets saved thinking I'm pretty good. I just need some help. Nobody. You cannot get saved that way. Because what will happen is you will pollute the gospel with your righteousness. What you'll say is, Jesus gave me 90% of what I got, but I got 10% of it from my own self. It's like a saltwater well next to a freshwater well. If those two streams mix, even a little bit, the freshwater becomes salt, and it's not worth drinking. That's the same thing that happens with the gospel when we infuse works anywhere in the process. The whole thing is messed up. It's not that we can partly get the gospel right. No, you either got the gospel or you don't have the gospel. There's no halfway. And this is the gospel. We are sinners, all of us. Romans 3.23 makes it as blatantly obvious as it is possible. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter what you've done, how you've lived, how good you think you've been. It doesn't matter if you can look across the street and say, that guy's worse than me, I must be okay. Everybody has fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody. Therefore, Pelagius was wrong in his theology. Not because I said he was wrong or because Augustine said he was wrong, but because the Bible says he was wrong. There is none good. No, not one. That's the witness of the Scripture. You're a brood of vipers. You're poisonous asps. You will kill yourself and others with your self-righteousness. That's, that's the testimony of my life and of your life before Christ. None good, no, not one. If you're not convinced by the Holy Spirit, that is true. You cannot be saved. You can't. Once that's true, once you know that's true, the next thing you will become convinced of is that the source of righteousness has to come from somewhere else. You look at your life and say, I've polluted my entire life with badness. I'm awful. You meet people like this, they're downtrodden. They, they, they cry at the drop of a hat. They're begging for an answer. Help me. The Spirit's brought them to the threshold of salvation. All that's left is that they look to heaven, as Spurgeon says, and see their righteousness seated by, by God. Christ is our righteousness. The Spirit comes, He convinces us of our sin, and then He convinces us of our source of righteousness. He convinces us that we need a righteousness that's not of ourself. Look what it says in verse 10. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. That's confusing, maybe. But what He's saying is, you won't physically see me here, but my righteousness now is applied to the heavenly temple and I'm with him the father I'm with him my righteousness is secure Jesus has filled the treasure house of heaven with his righteousness it's not short any merit 
It is 100%. That's what he's saying. And the Spirit, praise be to God, comes and not only tells us that we are sinners, but he says, the treasure of heaven is yours through Christ. We're convinced of sin and convinced of righteousness and convinced of judgment. And the example of how judgment will go for those outside of Christ is Satan himself. Look at verse 11. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. We could take a long rabbit trail we're going to avoid, but I'm going to throw it out there. Satan is not going to one day be judged. Satan is not one day going to be bound. Satan is not one day going to be conquered by Christ. Satan is conquered, bound, and judged today. It's done by the work of the cross. Salvation was impossible, almost impossible for every nation outside of Israel. I mean, there were exceptions, but they were rare exceptions in the Old Covenant. God was doing His work in the people of Israel. And He was bringing a few from around the world to salvation. But at the cross, the beauty of it is that God opened what had been opened to Israel to all men everywhere. And the way He accomplished that was through the work of Christ in both paying for our sin, providing for our righteousness, and finally He bound Satan at the cross. John Bunyan has it right. Bunyan, fittingly in his Pilgrim's Progress, as Christian traveled the way, you remember, and there was a point on the journey when there were lines on the path. And he was scared to death. And he wouldn't go forward, would he? Because all he could see was the line. And the line looked like he's going to eat him alive if he went any further. And an evangelist came and said, it is at this point that most turn back for fear of the line. The line in Pilgrim's Progress is Satan. He draws that from First Peter, where he says that the line is seeking whom he may devour. The lion is still there. He still roars. He still has teeth. He still seeks to gnash and kill all believers. Trust me on that. He does. You know that. But what Christian couldn't see was the lion had a collar and a chain. He could come to the edge of the path, but he could not attack those on the path. He could scare them. He could roar. He could turn them back, but he could not eat them. And evangelist said, trust Trust and continue. That was the message. Trust and continue. And you know, Christian walked with these lines roaring at the edge of the path. And he says, they were chained. They were bound. The beautiful thing is at the cross, the Spirit was let loose on the world through the work of Christ to convince sinners of their sin and of their need of an alien righteousness which comes from Jesus Christ, and he bound Satan so that he cannot prevent you from coming any longer. He had blinded the minds and eyes of the Gentile world for centuries, and now at the cross, the Gentile world was open to the gospel. He's judged. 
He is no hope of salvation for Satan. But let me warn you as we move to a close. Just as there is no hope for him, if you die without Christ, you need to be convinced there is no hope for you. Anyone who's ever been saved was saved because they were scared to death of hell. I'm not here to put on a production and scare you about hell. But when you realize you are a sinner and that you cannot provide your own righteousness, you need it from somewhere else and you see that it's Jesus, the last step in your salvation, and you probably remember this, is I can't trust Him fast enough. Because if I die right now, I'm going to bust hell wide open. I must have Him. That urgency doesn't come from you and your mind and your heart. It comes from the Spirit of God as He presses people to the kingdom. Presses people to Jesus. And some of you have felt that this morning. And I can't make you believe it. It's not my job to make you believe. It's not my job to convince you. It's my job, and this is the final point of the message, to be a conduit of the conviction of the Spirit. Look at the... I've skipped it, you thought, but I'm there now in verse 7, convinced through our witness. Why did I emphasize to you? The Spirit will be sent to you if I go away. And when I go away, He will come to you. Why did I say to you, to you? I've emphasized that because the Spirit of God is the one who convinces and convicts, but He does it through believers. Since December, the second Sunday of December of last year, there have been no baptisms in this church. And that should strike us all. That should hit us in the heart. But it shouldn't fill us with guilt. It should not fill us with guilt. The question is this. And here's where I want to leave you as a Christian. The first part of the message you can say was for you. It was, and it was for lost people. If you're here and you're lost, do not run past your need for a Savior. I hope that's been made clear. But Christian, you and I have something to think about. Why? Why? Among people who know the truth and love the Lord are not many being saved. Is it because we're not being the conduit where the Spirit might convince and convict our lost friends, neighbors, and co-workers of their need of a Savior? Maybe you are. And if you are, I encourage you to keep the hand of the plow. Do not look back. Keep going. Trust that whatever He's doing, He's doing for His own glory and for His own sake. But for those who know that they are not a conduit, that you have not opened your mouth in one way, in any way, as a conduit for the living Spirit of God to convict and convince those you live with and around of their need of a Savior. This is our opportunity. Not to get emotional and feel guilty, 
but to be convinced. Same word. Convicted, convinced, reproved in this sense. That he will do his work, but he will do it through his church. You know, he will save who he's going to save. I don't doubt that statement. But he will do it through the preaching and the teaching and the witness of the word of God. I believe that statement. And so don't excuse. Don't ever make excuses for why people aren't being saved. And so I encourage you. I encourage you to leave this place convinced of your need as a Christian to be a conduit. I'm not whipping you up. I'm not asking for some big emotional response. I'm just saying, you know and I know whether we are being that conduit, that channel, that pot, that whatever, that vessel that is sharing and living the gospel in such a way that people are being touched by the Spirit of God. We know whether we are or not. If you are, continue. If you're not, be encouraged. It's available to you. And it's available in the same measure it was available to Jesus Christ Himself. Please do not leave saying, I'm going to be a better witness in my own strength. Please leave saying, if the Spirit of God is available to me, as he was to Christ. I will be a witness. I will be a witness. I want to give us opportunity. This has been a, hopefully a moving time for you, the whole service. And I want to give opportunity. We don't have any music planned. We're not going to have music. I'm not asking you to come down, but I'm making the altar available to you. We don't do that often. Uh, this is not a close your eyes and raise your hand kind of thing. This is just an honest invitation that we make every week and I'm just making it public. If if you have been convicted, convinced of your sin, need of a Savior, and you want this altar or you want to talk with someone about it, I'm available. Our other pastors, other men are available at this time. If you're a Christian and you're saying, hey, I need, I need to make a public commitment. I need that time to come forward and solidify what the Spirit's done in my life rather than just running out and going about the day. We're going to take a time right now, just a few minutes, to sit. If you're convicted and you need to come forward, come forward. If you want to sit where you are, that's no problem. And after a few minutes of silence and prayer and conviction, hopefully, then I'll pray and close this, and that'll be at the end of our service. I don't have any announcements. Don't want to interrupt the work of God uh, that might be going on in our lives. But I do want to make it available to you. So we're going to open the altar now. And it's available. If you want to pray together, pray alone. If you want to talk with me, I'll just uh, be here in the front. And you come and see me. You can pray. You can pray.